to another episode of Setting the Tone in ER Retrospective. Today we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 4, which is titled Hit and Run, which aired on Thursday, October 6, 1994. My name is Elizabeth, and with me today, as always, are Lauren. Hello. And Daniel. Hey. And for first-time listeners, or those of you long-time listeners here with us on Episode number 4, this is a series retrospective, so we will be discussing spoilers from all 15 seasons and how they relate specifically to episode four. So you may get more enjoyment out of this if you go watch all 15 seasons on Hulu and then come back and give us a listen. You're more than welcome to stick around, but you might not have any idea what we're talking about. And on this week, we still have our top song of I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men, when is that ever going to go away? Oh, it's not going to be for quite a while. Oh, good. Let's <sighs> let's see what ends first, this season or that song's run. And then the top movie is finally something other than Time Cop. We have The River Wild. I can't say it's one I've seen. This came out when I was two. Not a classic I'm familiar with. And then along with that, we have my favorite cartoonist, Gary Larson from The Far Side, on October 3rd of 1994, he unfortunately announced that he was retiring from continuing the Far Side cartoon. Aww. There have been rumors that he is coming back to save us from this political climate and is going to lighten our hearts with new Far Sides, but I do not have confirmation on that yet. We also learned that on October 5th of 1994, the NBA shortened their three-point distance to 22 feet in an attempt to help offensive players score more. And Michael Jackson sets his career highs in three-point attempts and converted three-point field goals. Michael Jordan, you might want to read <laughs> that part there. What did I say, Michael Jackson? <laughs> yeah. Motherfucker. No, leave it in. Leave it in. Fuck. And- Michael Jordan sets his career highs in three-point attempts and converted three-point field goals. It's nearly double previous statistics. That's uh, the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan, and any one of you who think differently can fight me. And just to credit, those were coming from onthisday.com. Sweet. Yeah, so getting into the episode today, uh, this episode was directed by Mimi Letter and written by Paul Manning. Uh, Mimi Letter, this is actually her first episode. I looked a l- I, I peeked ahead a bit, and she has actually directed a fair number of episodes of ER, uh, but this is her first one. You may also know her as the director of one of my personal favorite cheesy movies of all time, Deep Impact, uh, <laughs> which came out in 1996, I believe. But yeah, she uh, has a hand in... A great many episodes this in this season probably about a almost a quarter of the directing duties really this season yeah so moving on to the actual episode we start uh with the fourth doctor wake up sequence in a row i wonder how long it's going to be until they stop going back to this but this time we have little baby carter snoring away yep with his pager going off just him oblivious to the world until ben comes and actually angrily wakes him up dude you're missing your pages sleep with it by your head yeah he tells him to actually start sleeping with his pager by his head which actually makes sense because you generally want whatever's going to be your alarm to be by your head and noah wiles physical comedy with his performance in these moments is really what brings a nice depth to carter like he has no problem flailing around looking like a drowsy goofball drooled on his face totally out of it And I just love him. He's just so great. And then Ben tells him anything more than three hours a day, and he's sluggish all day as uh, how often Ben actually gets sleep, which Ben... You smug butt. Yeah, you smug smug perfect asshole. (laughs) So then it cuts from Carter and Benton. Benton says, hey, these patients need your help. Go do this, this, and this. There's the charts. Get out of my way. 
And from that, it cuts right into Doug and Mark discussing the fact that, oh, you know, how's your, how's your week looking? And Mark says, oh, you know, the first two hours have been good. Jen and Rachel went to Detroit for a, for one of a job interview for Jen. And, you know, I'm, I'm home alone. And Doug's like, oh, you know, temp, you know, your wife's so far away and temptation's so close right as Susan walks by. I keep getting angry at the episodes when they do this stop trying to make mark and susan happen it's not going to happen and i'm glad it's not yeah but at the same time they would have been a good couple story-wise no but actual character wise yes i think they have much better chemistry as friends yeah i know we discussed this i know but but this is the latest salvo in that in the writer's attempt to try to get it to happen deep down i'm co-captain of the ss mark and susan so (laughs) And Doug does this a couple times in the episode. He tries to Ugh. kind of, like, bring uh, bring Mark down into the mud with him. Like, it's... Hey, I'm a shit stain. Why don't you come be down here with me, too? Yeah, like, it's just... It's continuing on with our, like, pattern here of Clooney and, well, Doug being uh, complete trash in the early parts of the series here. You know, I'm sure Clooney was wonderful, but Doug little trash bag yeah and oh boy do we have a lot of doug trash bag moments especially one big one at the end Mm. i am so looking forward to that so then after that we have carol going up just sort of going about her day just doing her stuff very much being curt with doug and just being very straight to the point just being like you got everything you're good good morning this curtain needs you bye yeah like does not want anything to do with him not here for the nonsense today yeah not giving him the time of day at all and he's just like oh hello mrs nurse hathaway and it's like doug she doesn't want anything to do with you drop it leave her alone and then he has that little smart ass laugh that he uses quite a lot throughout the entire series that just (laughs) just his uncomfortable i've been i've been kicked and he deserved it he does god we just shit on doug so much he sucks though like it's honestly like i don't remember feeling this strongly about this when i watched the show the first time but it's really true like he at least in these first i mean handful of episodes he sucks he is an absolute just trash bag of a human being in this first few episodes and i know it gets better but it's really surprising i think it's because george clooney is so charming and the way he presents the character is so charming that if you're not doing a deep dive you're just like oh yeah this guy ha whatever he's just he's just an idiot but then the more you watch it the more you're like, he is not listening to her at all. No. He was clearly the one who dumped her to begin with. And, like, what's his problem? Yeah, especially if you're doing what we're doing and just sort of watching the episodes with going over them with a fine-tooth comb. You're like, it's all the little things that you notice that he does. Like, like the not respecting her personal space. Like, the not respecting boundaries that she's clearly trying to set up. We're getting off. We'll, we'll get there. Yeah, we're getting off track. We'll get there t- towards the end of the episode. And then after that, we have Susan, who gets her big patient for the episode. Uh, this gentleman, did you write down Mr. his name? Mr. I'm Stopak. Looking... Yes, H- Harry Stopak. Yeah. He's the copier salesman. Harry Stopak, the copier salesman, who is just sort is just glued to a cell phone and won't give Susan the time of day and is just trying to do his own thing. It's like, and Susan's just like, like has that like that death glare, like, are you fucking done? Like, are you gonna done wasting my time? And then he launches into like this office tangent of a sales pitch, and she just walks out, and he's and he has like the look of like no, 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 but then keeps on going on with his sales pitch about sales pitch about warranties and copiers and 
all the different things that he sells. He's a pretty, like, at least a recognizable face. Like, I'd definitely seen him before. His name, the actor's name is Ken Lerner, and his kind of big credits, he was in RoboCop 2, which is, I guess, not that big of a credit when you think about it, but he's in RoboCop 2. He did a, he had a short run on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes, that's where I recognize Uh, him. Okay, thank you. Yep. This is another interesting kind of thread to follow, too, because of how long the show goes. We're going to get several examples of these, and he's the first one. We're going to get several examples of actors or actresses who come in as a character or as a patient or, you know, whatever, and then they come back later on as a completely different person. So he's one of them. He shows up here, and he shows up again later in the series as a completely different character. So we'll have to look out for him when he comes back. And he's still acting today. He's uh, got credits all the way up to 2019. The most recent thing that he's in is The Goldbergs, uh, a show that I'm told is good, but I have never seen a second I've seen of. a couple episodes. It's not, it's not bad. It's not really my cup of tea. But... It looks like it would be mine, but I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, I just like the lead actress from Reno 911. I forget her name off the top of my head. But, but yes, she's great. But yeah, good for him. So yeah, we just got the little thing. And then Doug's first patient of the episode. Oh boy. Oh. More portrayals of mental illness. Gotta love it. Which actually, this one's actually a pretty decent one. All things all things considered, like the woman who plays the schizophrenic mother does it pretty convincingly, I think. She is super intense. She carries it. Yeah, but Doug is trying to treat her little boy. Uh, his name is Ozzy. And the mother is just complaining like, oh, he can't hear. He can't hear. Like, he only he only hears some voices. Like, he's only paying attention to, like, some things, but not everyone else. And Doug is perplexed because this kid has no sign of infection, no sign of ear damage, anything like that. Can totally hear Doug 100% fine. Then the mother reveals, oh, he can't hear my dead mother. Well... The way it's revealed is so great because Doug goes, okay, well, what sorts of things can't your son hear? And she goes, well, can't hear my mother. And she says these terrible things like, I'm an awful mom. And Doug goes, oh, does she live with you? And the woman just kind of caught realizing that this is going to sound a little absurd, but still matter of factly goes, well, no, she's dead. Yikes. And then Doug goes, okay, what else can't he hear? And she says, you know, the ice cream man my ex-husband, Diana, and Doug's like, Diana? And this woman freaks out and goes, the Princess of Wales, does that ring a bell? Like, just yells at him. And it's like, whoa, what the fuck, lady? So he's like... She flips a switch, and it's just... She almost, like, hulks out, and it's just... It just gives you chills. Yeah, and then Doug and Carol sort of walk out, and are like, okay, cool, we'll, we'll be right back. And immediately they're like, Let's get psyched down here. And then poor little Ozzy just sort of wanders it as her as his mom is just sort of going off in the background on a full rant with someone. We can't yeah, well, see. I think it, I think it's the mother voice. Maybe. And he's just like he looks up so innocently and sweetly and it's just like my mom and I can stay together. Right. And Doug does what Doug does best. Yeah. And is a huge dick and is like oh yeah of course you can can. big fucking lie this ends up kind of being a little bit of a trope with doug like doug does this a lot with kid patients as i recall like he kind of either stretches the truth or just out and out lies to them because it's the easier thing to do like they kind of frame his whole arc in this episode around the fact that he does this but there's other examples of it i feel like later on where he also you know tells a kid what they want to hear 
in the moment just because it avoids a messier sort of situation. Yeah. Maybe we can maybe we can start taking a Doug Liar tally along with the intro tally. <laughs> oh, we we're, we're going to need a hell of a lot bigger Google Doc than we already have for our notes. <laughs> a couple notes on uh, Ozzy and his mom. The actress who plays the mom, her name is Annabella Price. Really good actress in this particular role. I really thought that I would find more stuff about her that she had done, but her credits kind of taper off around the year 2000. Like she hasn't acted in a while, so it seems like she's kind of out of the business um and then the little boy his name is andrew furchland and he definitely was more of a child actor than anything else i think he has done a few things as he's grown up to an adult but bulk of his credits are all from when he was a kid he uh, made appearances on uh, mad about you he was hmm. also uh, yet another buffy the vampire slayer uh, alumni yeah and he was his probably biggest thing was he was the little boy in the fan the robert de niro wesley snipes like stalker fan movie where it's a horrible fucking movie but wesley snipes plays a baseball player for the san francisco giants and robert de niro is like is an obsessed fan and he kidnaps uh, or yeah, he kidnaps the kid. I don't know. It's uh, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie because it's fucking garbage. But that was probably his biggest yeah, role. Yeah, so. sounds like garbage. Well, yes. Yeah, so we've got the screaming mother in the background, and that leads us right into the another bang bang intro. There you go. Tally it up, Daniel. Yep, I got it. Two to one. Sweet. But we're at four. Oh, no, we didn't have one in the first there, one. Yeah. But there's no intro in the pilot uh, that's going to throw us off forever. Me, okay. uh, so two um, to one in favor of the bangs. Yeah, two to one in favor yes. of the banks. Post-intro, we have Carter being his utmost studious self. Yeah, reading off note cards to present this uh, older black woman who never really we don't really see again in the episode, but just doing his best to present all of his findings and all of his case and all the possible different diagnoses it can be. And to his credit, Benton's like, okay, cool. Do what you're going to do. Your Yeah, your findings sound great. Your hunch sounds great. Go for it. I'm not going to stop yeah. you. Well, he doesn't really say it in so many no, words. No, but, but saying that's kind of the gist. And Carter's like, wait, what? You you agree with me? And he's like, what? Go. <laughs> yeah. It's just showing the next sort of phase and that growth of that relationship where Carter's putting in more effort. You know, you see that with the cards. Like, his big weakness to this point has been taking patient histories and, you know, getting all of his facts in order. So Benton recognizes that he's making more of an effort. So Benton, I guess, in turn, makes more of an effort to trust his judgment. And, you know, it's it's just a nice little clue in to where that relationship is going yeah and then after that mark gets his first patient of the episode a lovely latina woman coming in with chest pains Uh, she's a defibrillator in her chest which i still think is such a fucking cool concept just from like a human ingenuity standpoint like let's put this electric shock device in someone's chest and it actually helps them like nuts but yeah so she's complaining of chest pain saying she can't breathe Mark's like, okay, well, we'll get you situated. We'll start getting medication. Sends her husband with the nurses over to the admissions desk to fill out forms and everything. And that's kind of where we leave them for right now. Yeah, just just showing her real quick. We'll come back to her in a little bit, though. Uh, but then we pop back over to Benton at the clerks at the admissions or nurses station. I don't know what we want to call it. Yeah, like well, yeah, that's what it is. It's the nurses station. Yeah, at the at the nurses station. And find his his personal villain for the episode, Dr. Langworthy, uh, our really first new character who will be a repeat. I I looked up 
Langworthy on IMDb, like the character history. And because I sort of like forgot that she existed. Like when she came on, I was like, oh yeah, her. Like she's not around for very long. Like she's, I looked it up, she's only around for six episodes. And this is actually her second, but I think it must be her first speaking appearance. Like it says she appeared in our last episode, episode three uh, on IMDb, Mm. but I don't remember seeing her. I don't remember hearing from her. So it must have been just like a quick like pass by visual of Mm -hmm. her. And this is where we actually get introduced to her as a character as kind of Benton's main rival in the surgical service. Yeah, yeah, or maybe she was cut from the episode for time or something like that. That's Yeah, that's possible too. So we have Benton and Doug chilling at the nurse's station. Benton's going over some stuff for his exam. And he's like, oh my god, Jerry, can you bring the fan over here? I'm super warm. And Doug's talking to him and he's like, oh, I hear you and Langworthy are going for the same fellowship. That's a big deal because she's a year ahead of you. And Benton's like, that shouldn't matter. Blah, 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 blah. Because Benton thinks he's hot shit, yep. as always. And then Langworthy immediately shows up and is like, Jerry, can you get this fan out of here? It's blowing right in my face. <laughs> like, there you go. Two different types of people in this world. And of course, they're men and women. <laughs> it's an interesting type of dynamic that they try to start with Benton. Like, because to this point, Benton has been mostly unchallenged. Like, Doug's getting paired off with Taglieri as a foil, like you know via carol susan's got Kason. mark kind of has himself himself and to a lesser extent his wife and carter has benton but benton doesn't really have a foil you know that makes him feel less than perfect or less than a fully formed doctor and so i thought this was an interesting attempt to try to create that for him and i think you can see some of the seeds of this that get transferred into other characters more effectively later on. But this was kind of an interesting first try at trying to give Benton a a foil. Yeah. Then we get our first big trauma of the day. An ambulance comes in with a kid who's been DOA and you know, they're at the nurse's station and Langworthy is like, come on, Benton, you can assist. So she's just talking down to him like, Oh, you can help me if you want, but they go and they move this kid into the trauma room he was DOA from a hit and run. Nobody saw it happen. Hey, look, it's the title of the episode. Yeah. And it's uh, and it's also the main storyline that you see, or at least the storyline that you see the most of throughout the episode because it heavily involves Carter because Carter gets pulled into the trauma as it's well. It's a Carter episode. Yeah, it's a Carter episode. Yeah. And it's, I think it shows a lot of growth throughout the episode of Carter. And really, we'll have some audio clips a little bit later in the episode that show that as well. And watching Langworthy do these chest compressions as they're getting set up in the trauma room, I was just like, God, you have to be so in shape to be an ER doctor. Like, the shit you have to move and do, I can't even imagine it. Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, I I have taught CPR just to, like, normal people in the public before, and it's, it's not easy. Like, and I always tell people that, like, you need to understand that if you're doing this right, you're going to be breaking some ribs, like, you're going to be on the person you're working on, so you need to be applying a lot of force, and you need to be really exerting yourself, and that gets, that gets tiring. And so for these doctors and nurses that are doing it, I mean... It's it's just really, really hard. And that's also going to be one of the things that we'll see time and time again throughout this sh- series run is they don't mess up a ton of stuff, but the things they do mess up or the things that look really, really bad are almost consistently always the CPR compressions. These were not bad. These were okay. But the CPR compressions you'll see from some of the other doctors as we go along, whew, they, get, they, they needed some coaching. Jen will have to tell us just how bad they are when we get to them. And you can oh, too. Oh, yeah. 
For half a second, I thought you meant Jen, as in Mark's wife. I was like, wait, are we going to have her on an episode? <laughs> no, remember we had the same confusion during episode one when my note said, fuck Jennifer, and Daniel took a little offense for a minute. <laughs> Mrs. Daniel no. is Jennifer, by the way. Mrs. Daniel? Mrs. Daniel. <laughs> I'm sure she would take offense to that. I'm sure she would. Don't tell Jen I said that, please. So then we go back to Mark with his chest pain patient. I believe her name is Vilma. It's, it's, Shh, I, I have it written name. down somewhere, but it's, I think it's Vilma. And he's like, okay, get her heart medications, get her going. Clearly, like, she's like, oh my god, I can't breathe, I'm hyperventilating, I think I'm dying. She's very, very uncomfortable and distressed. And all of a sudden, she goes like, eh! And she sits up straight, and she, like, tenses, and Mark's like, Velma, are you okay? And then she just lets out this frog-like belch right in his <laughs> face. The deepest, most, like, sound-from-the-underworld belch you have ever heard in your life right in Mark and Lydia's faces and Lydia just goes oh my god and like looks almost nauseated and puts on a face mask before she keeps working and then the woman's like oh I, I feel much better and then she just burps again and just we just hear little burps as Mark goes I think you ladies have this and walks away and we just hear her belching in the background and just like recovering from the awful indigestion that she had yeah I'd like to go on a little tangent go and for just it. say that one of the things I fucking love about this show is the way they incorporate humor like this. Yes. Is just yes. little bits here and there. Because, like, you see it later in the episode, one of our audio clips, it's, I was almost, <laughs> I was yes. fucking laughing. I was. We were chuckling. Yeah, we were laughing quite a bit when we watched the episode and we were taking notes. But just, like, the little things here and there, like, it's not, like, a funny show. It's still very much a drama show, but, like the levity in some of the parts like even little gross out humor things like this are just they pace them so well it's not like an entire episode is like has like 10 different segments of played for laughs like i think there's only like two or three per episode yeah that. per episode and they usually rotate with what characters they're using and it's just even though two of them are mark this time around but i just i just love it it's one of the things that i that i think the show does so well and i think it's this episode is one of those first examples of how it integrates humor really well. Yeah, they do it usually. <laughs> this this is a, a kind of an extreme example with the like really exaggerated burp sound effect. But for the most part, they don't rely on like gag type stuff with like sound effects or like music punctuation. Like wah wah. Like they don't like <laughs> do shit like that. Like like a show like Scrubs would do. You know, like Scrubs would do stuff like that but it would get almost cartoony sometimes but er always kept it very like rooted in the drama whilst just weaving in those kind of little moments of levity and and moments of humor to just break it up a little bit because if it was all depressing and all serious all the time it would be a, a really really exhausting i mean it, it feels like an exhausting show to keep up with sometimes but it would really be bad if that's all we got all the time yeah and then from that little bit we have div Again. The, Div the dickhead. Yay. Hmm. He's an asshole in this episode. Oh, my yeah. God. Coming down and doing his psych consult on Ozzy's mother, and he finds out that she is off her medications and delusional, and he diagnoses her as textbook schizophrenic, and that he has to be admitted, uh, which obviously Carol basically is just, just like sitting in the corner, like non-verbally saying, fucking right. You fucker. I know I'm right. Like, like looking I told at you dog, so. Like, you shithead. Nah, um, you broke this promise to this kid. Yeah, like, the, the the mother has to be admitted to the psych ward, and they have to call social services 
for the kid, and the kid has to go into a group home. The Presbyterian home. Yeah, and Doug gets to be this kid's villain, and this kid gets to be very sad, and fuck you, Doug. That's pretty much the summation of that of my thoughts on that. Mm. Um, and then it cuts back to the trauma, and after 31 minutes of chest compressions, which, holy shit. I believe that's what they ended up saying, yes. Yeah, they said so they worked on it for 31 minutes, and I imagine someone was trying to do chest compressions that entire time. Uh, looked like Dr. Langworthy did the brunt of it. She was very sweaty at the end of the scene. And it's Carter's first dead patient. It's kind of a t- turning point for him, like showing him like the actual like death side of the ER, which is something that all good doctors have to face at some point. Yeah, he. this is, I think, probably, a, like you said, it's a turning point for Carter. This is We were talking about that in one of the first episodes, like trying to find where we get the turn from baby carter into john carter and (laughs) i think this is the beginning of it like i think this is the beginning of the turn like i don't think he fully turns in this episode to where he's no longer baby carter but he is definitely like this case like it it weighs on him a lot in this episode and and he has to do a lot of things related to this case that kind of remove some of that wide-eyed innocence of being a new doctor and he is also just on a you know lighter note like he's also kind of starting to lose the middle part like he doesn't mm-hmm. fully have normal carter hair yet but he also doesn't have the little buster brown haircut from the pilot so he's he's getting there like he's definitely growing up on us but noah wiley just sells it so well oh he sells the shit out of it like he's so good with just his facial expression and just his just overall his look and his just over just his look and just it fits perfectly with the music that's the other thing, too, is the music was on point this episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, they're really yes. getting their feet under them with... The production team is really getting their feet under them with actually matching appropriate music. None of that weird-ass R&B shit from the first episode. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're getting away from the, the stuff that takes us out of the episode, and we're just getting... It, it, that was the best part about, I think, the soundtrack or the, the score for ER was always that it complemented very well. Like, it never felt like it dominated anything. It just kind of set the scene, did what it needed to do, and it didn't, like, overwhelm. And in the, that pilot episode was where I felt like some of that stuff was taking you out of where you needed to be. But now, like you said, they're hitting their stride and, and we're off and running. Yeah. And after that minorly devastating moment, we go back to... Mr. Stopak, uh, Mr. Cell Phone Addict, Mr. Stopak, which is weird to say cell phone addict for a 1994 show, and you can see how fucking big his cell phone is. <laughs> like, like, I don't think we appreciate enough just how far we've come in the last 25 years with technology. A cell to, phone the size of your head. Yeah, from those things to basically just mini computers that we have in our pocket today and i don't i don't remember if it's here or later in the episode because he's one that we keep coming back to but at one point his phone like when he's pressing it like they've got these sound effects for when he's pressing buttons on his phone that i'm pretty sure no phone ever in the history of mankind has ever made Hmm. that noise like it's the most like what they thought in 1994 like the 21st century was going to sound like and so like it was just very like overly space age kind of noises coming out of this phone when he would touch the buttons it was kind of funny yeah it's like no one i knew because i was six and none of my family members really had a cell phone at this point i thought my dad was hot shit because he had a car phone and his his 1993 ford taurus yeah all white with black leather interior oh yeah (laughs) but yes he's back with with dr lewis and they're finally talking about his fucking problem 
and it's stabbing abdominal pain and sometimes constipation and and you he has know, blood in a stool. Yep, and it doesn't really move around. It's just here, and it's it's been going on for a while. And she's like, well, why don't you see a doctor? And he's like, well, if they were open nights and weekends, I might. Nights and Sundays, Oh, I'm sorry, nights and Sundays. And then his phone rings again. And, and Susan is just done with his shit. And is just like, what the fuck, dude? Because he dis- completely dismisses Susan to take the phone call. Susan is flabbergasted and just pieces out. She's yeah. like, I don't have time for your shit. I'm going to go do my job. I really thought that for sure that um we were going to get some kind of big revelation with this guy later in the episode and i really thought he was going to be another one that was going to either either die on us or he was going to be a definite like you're going to die kind of guy like he was going to get some sort of comeuppance is the wrong word because that's not that's not what i'm getting at here but just like i thought there was going to be something yeah more more significant some kind of you know aha moment with him and he kind of just never really gets it he, he doesn't really learn much in this episode i don't think but sometimes people don't and that's life yeah that's true sometimes people don't get what is theoretically coming to them even I, though i don't think this guy is really doing besides I'm more, dismissing i more meant they don't learn oh okay that's fair. right yeah yeah, and then after the and then after that we get we come to our first audio clip that I pulled for the episode. Benton and Carter and Langworthy all have this lovely little interaction. You get any breakfast yet? No. Well, get some and be back in fifteen. Carter, come here a minute. He must have been on his way to shoot buckets. No ID, no name on the ball. His gym shorts say Bond Steuben High. Call the high school. It's summer vacation, but maybe someone can come and ID him. Well, wait a minute. Who gave you permission to assign duties to my student? I didn't know you owned Mr. Carter. I thought he was assigned to the surgical service. Yeah, well, he isn't. Are you saying he's unavailable to I'm me? I'm saying next time you ask. Dr. Carter, identify the dead boy for Dr. Langworthy here, and then you report back to me. Just bend and take a fucking chill pill, dude. Like, I don't know which. I don't know what is worse there. Benton getting so bent out of shape about Langworthy trying to assert herself, or just Langworthy trying to be like, "Fuck you, I'll do what I want." But it's so it's such a like impotent little like Benton interaction. Where he's like, "You don't get to tell my student what to do. I'm gonna tell my student." to do what you told him to do it's so like you know like he repeats her her instructions almost word for word and it's like just come on man like your dick's not gonna fall off like it's okay and for those of you following along with us just to give everybody an idea of where we're at we're at about the 12 minute mark in the episode so we're about a quarter of the way through then after that we have ozzy's mom being admitted Oh, is this when she bites the absolute fuck out of Dr. Dickhead? Sure is. Oh, yes it is. Sweet, sweet justice. But Ozzy Mm, sees this whole thing. Div is just super pissed off. Get her medicated. Yeah, and Ozzy is just like, I'm going to head out. (laughs) And from there, we go back to Vilma, the chest burp pain lady. uh, And she's all better, we think. And then all of a sudden... Her defibrillator discharges and causes her arm to jerk up and just be like, ah. Nearly slaps Mark in the face. And that the poor nurse, too. She gets like a cup of water right in the face, too. Mm, you're right, yep. I forget her name. She's one of the long-running nurses. She's the short-haired black lady. Yeah. God damn, what is her name? But yeah, she gets it right in the face. The skinnier black, the short-haired black lady. Yes. Helena yep. doesn't really have longer hair. True. Yeah, so Mark is says to call the cardiology department try to get it fixed and we will come back to them in a second but after that we have div the dickhead and susan talking while she cleans his hand in this audio clip 
She really sank her teeth into you. Any any patient who's even potentially psychotic should be placed in four-point restraints and muzzled. Spoken like a true healer. Uh, after 15 years, not one week has gone by, not one week without being bitten, spat, puked, or peed on. I'm only missing philosophical fart. <laughs> I'm not old. Is, uh, is this necessary? Human mouth literally swims with bacteria. Staphylococcus, Echinella. The woman deserves a lobotomy. Not a, a hammer to the head. Ow! Sorry, did that hurt? Yeah. He has the compassion of a two by four. <laughs> like he, he should not be anywhere near. A doctor like nowhere near patient care it's just oh i was saying i captured this specific thing a because he says all this shit in front of ozzy the best well he doesn't know ozzy's there but like ozzy hears that his mother should be lobotomized which could go in there div but also i think it's really the strongest indicator yet that we have that div is in a downward spiral and that he's headed for that breakdown that he has in a, in a few more episodes he certainly sc- screaming towards a midlife crisis there when she calls him old and he's like that's the thing he takes the greatest offense to not that you're a bad doctor and that you lack compassion but that you might be able he's like i'm not old like okay buddy that's really the problem here like not the fact that you're completely jaded and you've you're suggesting that as a psychiatrist you are suggesting that your patient should be lobotomized fuck off yeah that seems like that seems like a less than ideal person that you would want heading up your psychiatry department but you know that's just me, the simple mental, a simple frequent mental health patient. Different strokes for different folks. So I wouldn't want someone who thinks someone should be lobotomized as my psychiatrist. So, yeah. Or muzzled or... Yeah, or any of that shit. Anyway, moving on. And then we have uh, Carter, and, Carter and Langworthy. Carter's just showing more of that the fact that like he's just really taking this kid's death, even though this kid was dead before he arrived in the ambulance... Carter's taking it really hard, and he just says there's something, he just wishes there was something more that he could do for the kid or for the family, and yeah, and Langworthy's just like, what the fuck do you want to do? Like, what do you think you could do? Carter's just like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, But as he's walking down the hall, he sees a motorized wheelchair start to move all by itself. Foreshadowing. Spooky. (laughs) And then Doug gets tagged in on one of his patients so you know to just to pile on the the dog hate even more so then tag says to him i understand you've been quite attentive to carol since she got back <laughs> i think that's the nicest way of saying step the fuck off my girlfriend asshole i've ever yeah. heard he's he's putting doug in his place there which you know i mean good for him to for doing it but again he could be doing this in a lot more aggressive and dickish of a way like he's be he's still exercising quite a bit of restraint with this guy who clearly can't take a hint and clearly like is still being aggressive and still like sticking his nose in where it doesn't belong like he's still very like you know he's being professional about it and like you really see like when they're in like a two shot together like tag's got like a solid like three or four inches and probably about 60 pounds on Clooney like he could beat the fuck out of him if he wanted to (laughs) Oh, I would love to see that. I would I would pay pay-per-view prices to see that. 1994 Clooney and this guy going at it. Oh, I think that would have been fucking hilarious. Doug claps back with, I didn't mean to be. 
like, oh, you know, just trying to brush it off. And Tag just, you know, passive-aggressively goes, no, I'm glad you two are still friends. Like, just rubbing it in and then shakes his hand. Oops, sorry. Shakes his hand and walks away. Emphasis on the word friends. That's it's such a little fuckboy response out of Clooney to like well, I didn't mean to be like don't play dumb dude like you know you're you know you're stepping over lines like just be I don't know like I'm so disappointed in the the character of Doug in these first few episodes he does get better does For, he I think he does so. he he absolutely does I'm genuinely asking because I do not remember his arc so yeah he gets more patience as he goes along that sort of teach him a bit more humility. And he does learn his lesson. He does become the sort of aggressive leader, like as he like fights to get the specific pediatric ER in a few more seasons. Oh right, he, yeah. He more so than almost any character, he really benefits from Weaver. When Weaver comes in at the end mm. of, I think, I think she actually comes in at the beginning of season two. But he, like, he's kind of directionless until he has Weaver to play off of. And then once he has Weaver to play off of, he just like hits the ground running and is like really really shines yeah so for as much as we shit on him now we will sing his praises later just yeah. get just give us a just give us some time we don't hate doug we hate doug where he is right now yeah we hate 1994 season one doug yeah so then susan we cut back to susan giving harry a death glare when he answers his phone again when susan is trying to tell him he needs to lower the stress in his life and actually cut back on his work because he has an ulcer and oh, ibs oh yeah he has he has irritable bowel syndrome and is headed towards an ulcer yes and she's concerned that it might develop into ulcerative colitis and that he needs to go see a specialist to check on that and his phone rings and he looks at it almost goes to answer it and susan just looks at him and he like waves an apology and sets it down yeah so tiny moment of growth there. yeah because susan just looks like he's gonna straight up murder this guy which to be fair he's been a dismissive jerk to her yeah. this entire episode and so then far. and then she he's like okay well how do i cure this what do i do to get rid of it for the ibs and she's like well eat more bran lower the stress in your diet and he goes i don't really control the stress in my life in my office there are two kinds of guys the guys that sell over 10 million and make this trip to palm springs and the guys who don't you know how many times i've missed that trip i've never missed that trip like mm-hmm. he's acting as if it's the biggest crime in the world for her to suggest don't answer your phone once in a while. Yeah, I'm of I'm of two minds about that particular aspect of it because like it definitely illustrates again how like obsessed with his job this guy is and like how he's it, it's a problem of his own creation, but at the same time too like it also illustrates a little bit of our sort of societal issue of like we have been conditioned to just work ourselves to the point of exhaustion and to the point of unhealthiness. And he feels like if he doesn't keep going at the pace he's been going, he's accustomed to going, then he's going to somehow be a lesser person or he's going to lose his identity or his job or, you know, whatever. Like, so, I mean, it's kind of a, it's a double-sided coin there. I mean, they don't get nearly that nuanced with it in this episode, but I feel like there is something to what he's saying. Like, it's like, yeah, I know I need to reduce the stress in my life, but where do you suggest I do that? Like, I have to have this job to provide for my family. So like, you know. Work identity and provider fatigue and feelings of inadequacy are a real thing, especially in our society. And I don't think it gets talked about enough. And, you know, this is a very nuanced spot where they touch on it is it's like, if you're expected to be the breadwinner, if you're expected to work the 40 plus hour weeks, if you're expected to be A plus at your job and put in the extra, 
where the hell do you find time to be a plus at taking care of yourself? Where do you find time to do those quote unquote frivolous activities that make you able to go back to work and kick ass? How do you separate that identity and how do you take care of both sides of that coin? Yeah. I feel like we're reading a lot into the situation. <laughs> but I also think that that's the beauty of the show is that you can have stuff like this and on the surface it just seems like a whatever statement, but then also you can actually think about it and actually think about like the feelings behind the statements and get into the minutia of all the things. So just another thing we like. So from there, we uh, have Benton's first glimpse of humanity. What? Benton has a life? <laughs> yeah, the first the first glimpse that Benton actually has something else besides being a surgical resident. And we get the first appearance of Marcellus Wallace, also better known yeah. as Bing Rames. Yep. I forgot that that was Bing Rames until you just mentioned that. That's I couldn't fucking remember when you said Bing, oh hey it's that fucking guy yeah when you said Bing Rames was coming up in this series like either last episode or the episode before I was like who the fuck does Bing Rames play because I just know him from the Mission Impossible movies Bing Rames plays the most inconsequential but also unfortunately because of what a big star Bing Rames is he's not here very long he plays the most inconsequential character who can't be written off like he appears throughout the first season and I maybe into a little bit of the second season, you know, because this is 94. So Pulp Fiction's out like right about now. And so he's becoming a very, very big movie star. And it's going to be hard for him to keep showing up for this role on ER that is admittedly kind of beneath him at this point. But because of the, the length of the storyline involving Benton's mother and just Benton's family in general, because Benton's family, you know, it extends out beyond his mother. It goes into his sister and her kids and stuff like Benton. They, they keep going back to Benton's um, home life quite a bit throughout the early seasons. And as a result, Ving Rhames ain't going to keep coming back for these little guest spots. So they have to refer to Walter quite a bit. But he's almost never actually physically seen. Like, he's almost always just referred to in, you know, oh, hey, how's Walt doing? Like, shit like that. So it's kind of funny. Like, you know, this is a, a little glimpse or a little snapshot of Ving Rhames' life where he's just about to break through as like a super duper big movie star and all of this is going to become like second fiddle to everything else he's doing yeah because i think mostly in later seasons it focuses a lot more on jackie yeah walter's wife uh benton's sister yeah it focuses a lot more on jackie and yeah he just sort of falls to the background i think we do see him pop up every now and then but yeah not nearly as much as we do in season one but yeah this is sort of showing that yeah, like I said before, that Ben actually has a life outside of being a surgical resident. Carter's eavesdropping this whole freaking time. We start to get the first early glimpses of the Benton's mom has some issues. You know, it's never really officially given a diagnosis, I don't think. But, like, it's essentially assumed that she has some form of either Alzheimer's or dementia and that she is, she can't be left alone for long periods of time, basically. The quote is, uh, you can't leave her alone for five minutes or she'll be in the backyard yelling at the neighbors. And you know, it's assumed that really Benton isn't really doing too much with her, with his mom's care. It's really left to Jackie and Walt. Yep. And he's agreed tonight that he'll go over and sit with his mom so Jackie and Walt can go out for a big fancy dinner for their 10 year anniversary. And Walt laughs and says, you know, she even made Jackie take her to the parlor to, to get all pretty for you tonight. So, like, it's a big deal that he's going and helping out, and Walt's really appreciative of it. Yeah, this ends up being kind of the big dominant outside of the hospital storyline from season one. Like, this is, Benton's mom is a 
kind of a storyline that carries on for a little bit. It's like I said, it's the biggest thing that happens outside of the hospital walls. And it's, again, it's a nice sort of um, glimpse into the lives of these people outside of just the four walls of the hospital. And, and it's something that they do. I don't think they spent as much time doing in later seasons. They would do like, you know, event type things where they'd follow somebody to Africa or something like that, but they didn't do as much of like just um, interpersonal family stuff outside of the hospital. Yeah. From there, Carol actually finds young little Ozzy uh, in his hiding spot. And Carol is just so, she's so good with him. She's such a warm motherly figure in this point. And even if you don't want to interpret it as motherly, you could just say it just just being very calm and sort of getting on his level in terms of, you know, sort of just warmness and gentleness and innocence. And even getting on the floor with him. Yeah. Like literally getting on his level like that, which I just think is so sweet when adults do that. And Ozzy is just says very, says very sweetly, like that doctor said we could stay together. Doug, you fucking asshole. <laughs> and then and then Carol's like, yeah, you know, we're not sure. And she has to stay here for a while so we can take care of her and she can get better. And Ozzy's just like, well, can I see her? And Carol's like, I don't know. I have to see if she can have visitors. But do you want to hang out with me for a while? And she just gives him this warm, supportive smile and like kind of playful, too, like just to just to kind of make him think it might be fun. Which we find out later that it is, because who doesn't love hanging out with Jerry? True. Um, <laughs> we'll get to that. And then after that, we wrap up Susan and Mr. Harry's storyline here as, you know, he sort of half half agrees, like half pledges to like, oh, yeah, I'll get this checked out. I'll do what I can. Uh, and then immediately tries to launch into like, who does the who does the equipment procurement for for this for this hospital? Like just like looking around, like who can I talk to? Yeah, um, and then his phone goes off, and in true 1994 fashion, everything that has a motor or electricity to it just goes haywire off it, sort of reinforcing like, oh hey, that's why cell phones weren't allowed. I don't know if this was actually what happened. I've never been in a hospital or on an airplane or something where there was a cell phone like before that when that when that actually mattered. Yeah, it's a very quaint, like, mid-90s look at what we thought about cell phones at the time. Like, cell phones are this new sort of scary technology that, you know, well, they'll make all the medical equipment go haywire, and they'll cause planes to fall out of the sky, and they'll give you cancer. And, like, it's this very, like, it's maximum cell phone panic of, like, we don't understand this technology, and here's all the bad things that it could do. I mean, they give doctors, instead of giving them pagers now, sometimes they have cell phones. Like, it's... It's not as apocalyptic as this episode kind of makes it out to be where it'll just cause every machine in the hospital to shit itself. Like, it's just, it's kind of funny. One of the things it does, though, is Mark is there with his with his uh, defibrillator patient, and the patient's arm jerks back, and Carter just happens to be walking behind with a tray full of urine samples that he's uncapped. on the way to the lab. Yeah, uncapped. Which, Carter, what the fuck are you doing there? <laughs> Pees, spills pee all over himself. And Mark is just like, what the fuck is going on here? And looks at the cell phone and asks about it. And the guy immediately tries to sell Mark one of the cell like, phones. Oh, I can get you a deal on it. Yeah, I'll give you half off. I'll get you half off on it. It has all these like turbo dial and save memories and like, yeah, like con- basically just saying, oh, it has contacts. <laughs> <laughs> 
It is very interesting to me, though, that they would do the, you know, again, weaving in those moments of humor. It's interesting that they would do that with Carter in this. I mean, there's nobody else that you could have done it with. Like, there's no other character that it would have made sense to have in that situation. But it is such a stark contrast to where we go immediately after this with him going through the yearbook and, you know, going back into the very, very serious, very, very emotional situation with the dead kid that, you know, it's just kind of like a stark contrast between we get this like humor slapstick moment where he just spilled urine all over himself. And then we immediately go into this big emotional scene with him. I don't know, like it, it, it works well enough, I guess, but it just seems so odd to me that you would immediately follow this sight gag of him, his big emotional scene for the episode. But like I said, yeah. there's no other character that you could have conceivably substituted in that, that would have made sense. So, Yeah, it kind of undercuts the following scene, which is Carter. He gets the yearbook for the high school for the high school for the kid, and he's trying to sit and identify the dead kid. And most of the scene is perfect. Like Carter's physical acting here is, is great. The music is perfect. And just him looking visibly shaken and tearing up after he finds what he thinks is the right kid. And Carter just sort of nails that performance right there. But it's just, I feel like it's kind of undermined by the fact that like his shirt and coat are just urine stained. And yeah. I don't know. That took away, it took away a little bit. Like it's still a really good scene. It's still really powerful Carter moment and sort of showing him growing up a little bit, but yeah. And doesn't Benton actually say like, he's like, change your clothes before they come. Like it was, yeah, yeah. it was right after this. Like, yeah, it's right after, right after Carter, uh, which actually in this audio clip that we, that we have. But right after Carter thinks he IDs the kid, he shuts the yearbook, gets up, gently covers the kid with a sheet and then goes to find Benton and tells him this. Find him. Yeah, uh, Stephen Tierney, a junior. Remember a marching band and on the debate club? He's kind of a nerd. Kind of like me. I, um, I gotta get up to the OR and do a hernia. You call us folks? Should I? Just get him down here. Let Langworthy break the news. Change your clothes, There's that undercut and change your clothes. You don't want to smell like piss when the dead kid's parents get here. Which, to be fair, is a is a solid piece of advice. It's true. <laughs> it is true. But it just, again, points out kind of the absurdity of that whole scene of like, did we really need to spill piss on him right before his big emotional scene? But anyway. Which, yeah, you can hear just how shaky his voice is and just the music just very much complimenting the seriousness and the emotion of the scene. And, and then I'm... we have a very quick 180 to Doug and Mark playing catch in the hall with, I think it's like a gauze football. Yeah. Talking super loud and in hearing range of everyone about what would justify Mark cheating on Jen. Like, come on, dude. I know you're not going to do it, but have some chill but a little bit. Doug's like, oh, what if she had an affair? I could help. And like, just like blatantly alluding to like, hey, if I bang your wife, you could sleep with Susan. Like, come on, just, uh, I'm sorry we keep shitting on Doug, but he keeps giving us every opportunity right? to, just to talk about just how much of a fucking dickhead he is. Uh, yeah, he's pretty, pretty bad here. 
Uh, but maybe that's just our 2019 woke culture. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, ugh. Do we need to cancel Doug Ross? No. No, I he swear better. he gets better. <laughs> I'm telling you, he gets better. But it's just, man, I did not remember how bad he is in these early episodes. How immature. Yeah, yes, I, I guess immature. that's That's a great word. way to put it. And then going along with the more, uh, a little more with a lighter tone, uh, we have a heart attack patient come in. The gentleman is in ashless chaps and handcuffed to a woman who is just wearing nothing but a sheet and a lacy uh, a pair of lacy gloves this whole sequence is just pure insanity the patient's name is neil Shear. the assistant her name is priscilla right yes but yeah she's like like with the super 90s like late 80s or early 90s just poofed out curly hair i love it and mark trying to be the gentleman and Keep her sheet up. Uh, adjust the sheet as they're walking past. I love that. And I love how she looks back, like, kind of almost angry at first. Like, like maybe she thinks he's trying to lift up the sheet or something. But, like, he's trying to adjust it so it doesn't fall. And I think she realizes that halfway through. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, but she yeah. turns around with this, like, very accusatory face. Like, how dare you? Oh, okay. Sorry. And then Jerry being ever the gentleman, peering out and looking as her butt crack is sort of starts to be exposed because grinning. the sheet's falling down just with a big goofy grin on his face we also kind of establish here and maybe maybe i'm alone on this and you guys didn't pick the pick up on this for later on in the show but this does sort of establish the long-running subplot of jerry with bdsm like what there is a very sub subplot of jerry like there's a i swear i, I couldn't even begin to tell you what season it's in but there is a patient who comes in who is in like full like gimp outfit like BDSM stuff and like I forget what the issue is but there's some sort of emergency going on with them and it is heavily alluded to it is never spelled out in plain English it is never like it's Jerry but it is heavily alluded to that that patient is Jerry and it's clearly him in the outfit like it's the the size of the guy like it's clearly Jerry but what? that's what that's an episode i think that's in like season like nine it's yeah it's way it's, after like, this when like, carter susan abby and luca and gallant yeah it's it's way way down the line but this i th- and there's like always like it, it's in there like i'm just telling you like there's definitely a subplot of jerry with allusions to bdsm it's in there all it, it, i can't wait until we get there but i just thought that was funny lauren is looking this up and I am, right now and I am fiercely googling trying to see if I can find this. Good yeah, luck. And that actually good luck that with episode that, that you're that episode that you're alluding to is actually one of my favorites of the later seasons for sure. Yeah. Oh, like it's just such a good character episode, but we'll get there in a few years. So, stick with us folks. It's one you won't want to miss. Yeah, I can't find it. Okay, that's fine. But what Okay, that's gonna bug me for eight more seasons of this show until we <laughs> until we see it. Yeah, we'll just we'll just have to call it out as it comes along because I'm telling you, there's more examples of it. That's just the most egregious example, but there's definitely little references to it all along the way. Also, holy shit, Jerry is six seven. Jerry's big boy. Jerry is a big boy. Abraham Ben Ruby is a hell is a is a large man. After after that whole debacle yeah after that whole little mini debacle in the hallway as they're going towards uh curtain three curtain two or three i forget which one it is a curtain yeah carol drops off ozzy little ozzy to hang out with jerry tells jerry that his mom's on the fifth floor and jerry's just like ooh, okay like very not non-verbally so it's just like 
oh, okay, cool. Like, like, I get what this means. Yeah, and Jerry, being very sweet, immediately asked the kid, hey, have you ever seen a picture of a diseased gallbladder? <laughs> Pops him right down in a chair, slaps a medical textbook in front of him, and just, like, pats his hair and leaves him to it. Which, to be fair, like, a four- or five-year-old kid, I'm sure, would find that... Really cool. Yeah. I'd find it cool. Maybe not so much anymore. But then immediately after that, heart attacks guy's wife shows up. Like, Turns and... out the other lady was his mistress. Oh, dear. And his mistress is his wife's secretary. This plot thickens. Yeah. Green's comedic timing in that situation is just, it's so good. So is Lydia's, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, but before that, we have uh, Benton being an asshole to Susan, because everyone just gets to be an asshole to Susan today, I guess. I and every day. I think they're just handing out t-shirts like, hey, I was an asshole to Susan today. Love me. But Susan calls calls her down over a potential appendicitis surgical consult, and Benton is just like, what a dick. He's just like, why would you pull me out of a hernia for this? Why would you waste my time with this? I could have been in surgery. And just, ugh, God. And just Susan just like can't get a word in edgewise, which will come back to haunt him very shortly. But then we also, but then we find out that Jerry has lost both Ozzy and Mrs. Shearer. He's lost track of both of them. Good job, Jerry. Jerry, you're awesome at your job. And the the look that Carol gives him, like, really, dude? And he's just, like, he's like, I know, he's like, I'll, I know. I'll, I'll find him. <laughs> it's fine. Like, this is probably not the first time Jerry's lost track of a patient. Yeah, like, you have one, you had one job, Jerry. Come on. Get your shit together. And then, after all this stuff, it just, again, hard pivots into Carter very woefully and tearfully, like, choking up, calling the kids' parents. And just telling them that the kid's condition is serious and that they need to get down there. This this episode's just full of a lot of hard pivots, I feel like. There's, there's a lot of beats in this episode. I'm looking at, we're only about, like, 20 yeah. minutes, or 25 yeah, so, minutes in. Yeah, we're about two-thirds of the way through the episode yeah. or so. Lots of, lots of zigzagging, but it doesn't, to me anyway, it does not feel as disjointed as say episode two did like it it still feels like it has a a similar or at least a as smooth of a flow as episode three but episode three was obviously much more on the like emotional stuff and less about the levity and but this one is kind of like we're going back and forth back and forth back and forth but it doesn't feel like that when you're watching it like it it doesn't feel like you're getting pulled back and forth it just feels like it's got a flow to it it feels very cohesive yeah and i feel like they're finally hitting their stride yeah I mean, I feel like a little tonally, it's kind of all over the uh, weird and all over the place and a little disjointed, but that's just my personal opinion. And if you're listening to this show, hopefully you care about it a little bit. And if you don't, then cool. There's two other people whose opinions you might care about. Nah, I don't really care about you guys. <laughs> you're not a listener. That's true. I could be a listener. Well, that wouldn't make sense. Anyway. <laughs> um, and then after Carter calls the kid's parents. Only we- tells them the kids that the condition is serious. Yeah, we have, this is one of two examples in this episode for no matter how much we shit on Doug Ross on this show, here with your good friends on Setting the Tone and ER Retrospective, there is no one, no one who can do it better than Carol Hathaway. And this is example one of two in the episode. Carol, does name Joey Skarnekia ring a bell? It's Pete's case, it was a car accident about three months ago. Not a clue. Well, this insurance company wants some information. Will you call medical records for me? Are your hands painted on? What? 
pick up the phone and dial. Out of curiosity, is this free-flowing hostility aimed at the world in general, or just me? You don't want to know. What? What? You told that little boy he could stay with his mother when you knew she'd be put away, probably for a long time. Just who did you help by lying to him? I didn't lie. Sure you did. You told him what he wanted to hear because you didn't want a big emotional scene, which is something you can't handle and avoid at all costs. Just oof gets him good but she doesn't get him quite as good as she gets him like 10 minutes from now yeah but that's why i said example one of two but just carol and and like what the fuck doug like how do you not know that you just lied to this kid why are you trying to defend yourself against that when you clearly knew from i'm sure you have at least a few years experience at this hospital at this point someone who's clearly a head case is going to be brought to the fifth floor. And you know what that means. And I feel like Carol is entirely justified with her semi-righteous anger that she has going on here. Oh yeah, this is a long time coming. And it's like, I don't think it's exclusively about the situation with the kid and the mother. I think she is probably filtering a lot of her anger at him generally through this situation. Like she's already had it up to here with this fucking dude who cannot take a hint, who keeps inserting himself into her life. And so this is a perfect opportunity for her to just, like, download all of that onto him in one rant. And we will get the PS de resistance from her later in this episode. Uh, I feel like we're hyping it up a lot. But it's so good. It is good, but though. It is, like, it's so it good. good. But so for now, we move to sur- Susan's surgical consult patient uh, has now, congratulations, she has a perforated appendix. Her white count is up to 20,000. Yeah, and Susan is just flipping her shit and being like, God fucking damn it, I knew it. Then goes right into Mrs. Shear getting into the room right as the handcuffs are cut off by Big Strong Malik. And the mistress is just able to hide behind the curtain and get her legs up on the table before Mrs. Shear comes in. Mark tries his darndest to try to get her to go back into the waiting room, but kind of fucks up and says he's stable, which... Prompts the reasonable question of, well, you just say stable. Why can't, why do I have to not, why do I have to leave? And then she sees the assless chaps. <laughs> and the handcuff and just starts to cry a little bit and looks in the curtain area behind her. And we find mostly, mostly naked Priscilla, still covered by her wonderful little pink satin sheet. Who apparently at the time must have been the biggest star they had because she's listed as the guest star for this episode like patricia really? patricia healy who plays priscilla and i looked her up on imdb and like she has a fairly like middle of the road filmography like it's nothing to like really write home about but for some reason she's listed as like the lead guest star on this episode and i don't get why like so but yeah you have her and then the other lady is her name is elaine kagan mrs shearer who, other than having a name kind of close to a nice Supreme Court justice, doesn't really have much to write home about on her thing either. So Now, the way Mrs. Shearer presents her grief and her anger, there's something about her, not her tone, but I think it's her enunciation that just, it makes me cringe every time. Like, she kind of slurs it. Like she doesn't, like, like her line reading was bad or... Yeah, like she's she's like, I let you think this is really funny right now, or like there's yeah, just, she's trying to convey a lot of like she's trying to like chew it. Yeah, she's trying to convey like the tragedy of the situation from her perspective, but it's a scene that's played for laughs, and so it's 
it, it's totally it's kind of strange yeah and they're all all of the doctors well mark uh, mark and the nurses all sort of have a sheepish look as they're watching this play out so again trying to play it for laughs and yeah i think they do think it's funny which i mean kind of is a little bit i mean for ish. for them i'm sure it is because who would they're never gonna see these people again so like for them of course it's funny yeah she just sort of starts kind of beating the heck out of him and then runs out yeah runs out crying and then again kind of a reasonable response right when you find out that your that your husband's been cheating on you right. with your secretary let me clarify i more meant the actress's literal delivery than the character's response i think the character's response is completely valid and totally makes sense in the situation but it's something about the way the actress delivers it that just doesn't read quite right to me well i think she's kind of tearing up while she's doing all this stuff so that might have played into it a little bit it could be but then after that much more serious uh we find out susan was right and that this woman that she'd been treating with the back with the lower back pain uh has indeed perforated her appendix and morgan stern just starts to lay into her and susan is just glaring the fuck out of like just boring a hole through benton's soul because morgan stern's like you're like that was really stupid that you didn't ask for a surgical consult for a patient with lower back pain and all this other stuff like a medical he says like a medical student would know better and then benton actually in a good benton moment he actually mans up and owns up to the fact that he actually came down and did a surgical consult and he didn't think it was anything yeah i actually really like that because i i like that we can show that benton has some humanity to him like he's not always right he does get things wrong he makes mistakes but we can also do that without turning him into a weasel like because i think it would have been very easy to write benton as this cutthroat weasel asshole who just does whatever it takes to get ahead in his chosen field and so you know a, a lesser version of benton the character i think would have just taken the bait there and would have been like yeah no that's you really fucked up there, Lewis. Like you really should have, you should have consulted somebody that would have been like, he, he could have done that, but he, because the character of Benton is written so well, you know, he takes the opposite and, and, and owns up to the fact that, you know, no, I, she, she consulted with me. I'm the one that fucked up. So I, I think it's just a really great piece of writing. Yeah. And then, which prompts Morgan Stern to ask Dr. Langworthy to assist with the surgery and, and not Benton. And even after Ben and Susan are just sort of left on the first floor as they're getting, as Morgan Stern and the patient are getting into the elevator, she just turns, she just has that glare still on her face and just turns and power walks the fuck out of there. Like just super pissed off and rightfully so, because even though he manned up to it, she still got chewed out and that feels shitty no matter if it's justified or not. And then Carter comes in and tells Benton that the parents of the dead kid are here and ben is just sort of like god fucking damn it i don't want to do this but hey come along with me you you have to learn how to do this anyway at some point so let's just go get this over with and then we get the big reveal that carter fucked up it's not their son if benton's look could kill there like the look he gives carter is just he's just mm. Oh, it's acted so well. And Carter just like, if you look up the textbook definition of a look that someone should give when they've metaphorically and possibly literally shit their pants, <laughs> that's Carter's facial expression right there. Yeah. And Benton and Carter's day just keeps getting worse and worse and worse on so many levels. Then, And then after that, we have 
random black guy with come in and just start loving up and hugging on Dr. Green because as I said it's the one year anniversary of Dr. Green saving this guy's life and Dr. Green is like eh, yeah sure I don't know who the fuck you are because I see thousands of patients a year <laughs> this is so out of place like this is such a weird if they were looking for anywhere to make cuts I would this would have been the first place to start because this whole sequence is just kind of weird but it does bring up an interesting thing timeline wise that I picked up on that I'm kind of curious to see how long that's that um, carries over so this episode obviously airs in October like we said but based on what this gentleman says in this scene it's August 25th on the calendar because he says it's the one year anniversary of him saving his life and every August 25th from here on out is going to be Dr. Green Day so canonically this episode takes place on August 25th the pilot took place on St. Patrick's Day and we know that eight weeks took place between episodes one and episode two. So that puts episode one somewhere, or I'm sorry, episode two somewhere in like mid to late May. So we've moved up six months or four, five months in total from the first episode to the fourth episode. And it'll be interesting to see how long that timeline holds up. Cause I know we're going to have some like Christmas episodes coming up. Like we're going to have, like, it'll be interesting to see how long they're able to keep this timeline straight before we start fudging with it, because they're skipping big chunks of time. It seems like a hard pace to keep up with going forward. Yeah. They, they play really fast and loose with the timeline at some points. I mean, generally they try to do like the nineties show thing where you air like your Halloween themed episode on on or around Halloween, right. and you get all your Thanksgiving episodes in November, and you get all your Christmas and snow and yada 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 episodes in around the holidays before you go on your little winter break before you come back in January or February, uh, like you do on network television. But yeah, after this, Green just, he has a cooler of steaks that he got from the dude, and sits down, and we get into this interaction between Susan and Mark. Uh, uh... I was embraced by two men today. I find that highly unusual. One of them gave me a dozen steaks as a gift. How about a cookout up on the roof? Oh, that sounds nice, but uh, I've got a date. Oh, yeah? Anyone I know? Yeah, actually, Div's Fedic. We've kind of been together for a month or so. Really? Great. Div's a great guy. Patient. Drug addict going to withdrawal. He sounds like a car alarm that you can't shut off. Uh, I love it. I think that's that's episode, that's really example two of two uh, in this episode. Just really how they do humor pacing so well just random dude in the background that you never see again and <laughs> just <laughs> the other thing about this too is that i sort of i mean because like we've been calling him dr dickhead this whole time that's the first time that i've really paid attention to his whole name uh div Svetic. so like two things about that name number one if you just say it over and over again faster and faster eventually it just become divs a dick which is a <laughs> which is really just it boils down the essence of his character number two that is a star wars prequels ass name like George Lucas would that sounds like something he would cook up in his brain like Div Svetic sounds like the most phantom menace ass name I could imagine like that's neither one of those names is a normal person name like I've never met a person named Div in my entire life and I can't 
remember anybody with a name that even remotely sounded like Svetic. So it's just it could be it could be Eastern European or something like that. True, and it could be a div could be a nickname for Dick. No, no, that's <laughs> not. <laughs> You tried. I mean, you're not wrong, but at the same time, I don't know. I've never heard that used as a nickname or an actual name like, either. What would so. that be a nickname for? Like Divin? Like that—that's not a name. Devin. Devin. Like, but you'd be Dev, not Div. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like we're reading a little bit too much into this. <laughs> we're getting a little bit too in the weeds on Div's name. <laughs> but after this, we have Carter making another so- somber phone call. This time to the correct parents of the dead kid from earlier in the episode. And he tells them all by by himself what happened to the kid. Uh, kid's name In it, person. Yeah. Benton just hangs him out to dry and makes him do it himself. Which, to be fair, he has to do that at some point. So he does. He may as well clean up his own mess while he's, while he's at it. But yeah, this whole episode is just Carter. Just such great acting out of Noah Wiley. And... Uh, I just I can't say I can't say enough good things about about his performance in this episode. He has the like market cornered in this episode on the physical acting. Like I mean his his verbal acting is good too, don't get me wrong, but like the facial expressions and his tone and his demeanor and even at the very beginning of the episode when he's all sleepy and groggy, like he is really nailing the nonverbal aspects super well in this episode. And were it not for Hathaway, I'd give it to him on the the verbal acting too, but Hathaway Hathaway kicks his ass with her, you know, takedowns on Doug like she is queen in this episode when it comes to the verbal part of the acting yeah so we get a little resolution on that Carter actually has the right parents this time and then we go back to Morgan Stern and Benton and Morgan Stern actually cuts him a little bit bre- cuts Benton a little bit of a break says that was a difficult diagnosis lots of surgeons would have missed it uh but also takes the dig because a lot of surgeons don't take the time to actually listen to their patients but the good ones do <laughs> teachable moment. Yeah, yeah. It's a, he uses it as a very teachable it's moment. It's a kick in the ass that Benton needs. Exactly. And then Morgan Stern invites Benton to assist him on a Whipple procedure, which you find out, which this comes up not only this episode, but also a lot more. A Whipple is like a six-hour surgery, apparently. I haven't looked into exactly. I haven't looked into exactly what it is. I feel like somebody on the writing team just really liked to say Whipple, and because it comes up to a degree that is like almost a trope like whipple is it's it's a lot i can let you know what it is go for it it is a complex operation to remove the head of the pancreas the first part of the small intestine the gallbladder and the bile duct Mm. it's used to treat tumors and other disorders of the pancreas intestine and bile duct it is the most often used surgery to treat pancreatic cancer that's confined to the head of the pancreas the more you know sounds unpleasant but yeah, it's a it's another one of those recurring themes in the show where it comes up that it's like a very grueling, a very exhaustive and long surgery, and that comes back back to bite Benton in the ass a little bit later. But for now, we actually get Tag and Ozzy little moment in there. Uh, Tag's being gentle, a uh, gentle giant man, and uh, showing Ozzy an X-ray, and it's very adorable. I just I just love this little kid. Like I know he's just meant to be like cute and innocent and everything like that it's really like not too much you know exactly like nuance or something like that that goes into a performance like that when you're four years old but still i think he does a very good job with it and i think he's probably like five or six but yeah still like when you're a kiddo yeah when you're when you're small human there's plenty of bad child actors out there so i mean it's he's good like he he does good with what he's given and yeah you know good on ross 
in this time he actually he's the one to actually tell Ozzy that he can't stay with his mom and he has to go up go to a group home for a little while and you know he's very calm very gentle and says you know your mom your mom loves you very much and then Ozzy just turns up with like the most is like with the most broken facial expression then why is this happening he's tearing up and hugging Doug and yeah it's it I mean it's a better late than never thing you know I'm glad that Doug finally get gets to rip that band-aid off and you know do what he needs to do but it really would have been a lot less messy if you'd have just done this from the start buddy yeah and then the whipple immediately comes and bites benton back in the ass so we skip forward to later in the evening benton was in the middle of a long surgery so he forgot about his mom walt and jackie could not go to their 10th anniversary dinner at that fancy dinner because benton forgot about his family you're gonna flake out on marcellus wallace like that seems that seems dangerous like don't if you're gonna flake out (laughs) on anybody don't make it that guy and walter is just fucking pissed and rightfully so and ben's just like i'm sorry i'm sorry and new letter says i forgot man i'm sorry and then walter comes right back at him with funny how that happens when it comes to your family twist the knife I know my my small life doesn't matter to compare compared to your surgery, but yeah, we don't ask you for anything. You need to be here when we say yeah. Ugh. And then we go into Carter with a lovely little growing moment with Jerry, which is present. I present to you in this audio clip here. Right there. Ah, you off? Yeah. Me too. Twelve whole hours. When are you back on? Tomorrow. Can I come back? You serious? I can't remember even why I'm doing this. Well, you want to be a doctor, right? Benton told my advisor that I was doing a generally adequate job. And that was before today. I don't, I don't belong here. Who smokes cigars uh, at work? Like, is it? I can't don't know. Is weird to anybody else? Nah, it's Jerry. I mean, he's off work, to be fair. True, true. But it's just like, I don't know. Like, smoking cigarettes is one thing, but like, I don't know. Just seemed weird. Jerry's a big guy. He needs more nicotine. He just wants to look like a classy mofo. Which, to be fair, he does. But and especially with the way he says Carter. Carter. <laughs> it doesn't just say Carter. It says Carter. It's just, it's a good moment between the two of them, and it just, Team Jerry. Yeah, and then uh, the next part of that, that sort of helps Carter along that train of thought of, like, you know, if I come back tomorrow, like, kind of proves that he will. I uh, didn't want to get get to it because it's much more of a visual thing, but uh, Carter comes just squealing around the corner and just drifts right into like right in front of Carter and Jerry and we find out that there's a pregnant woman in the back who's just about to give birth and Carter dives in head first while Jerry runs to get other folks and a gurney and such and Carter to his credit does a fair job of coaching her through the delivery and it is an excellent parallel to episode one when he was so terrified and bewildered in helping that woman through her giving birth where he was holding the head in to this, where he's like, all right, you know, we've got you. It's okay. Like, he just owns up to it right away and really just goes for it with no help. And Dad deserves an award for the expert station wagon drift 
to get them there. Like yeah. he is he's driving the hell out of that station wagon. Oh, so and then you have another uh, indicator of the fact that you're on at nine or ten o'clock at night. <sighs> Holy shit, there's so much blood. Lots of blood. And fluid. And placenta. Yeah, there's, there's and just... chunks on the baby head. Yeah. It's... Ugh. 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 Sorry. Like, I don't get squicked out by much on this show, but it's the chunks. Yeah. That... And it's the amount. Yeah. And it's just it's like... all over the sidewalk. And just Carter's reaction, like, he's not, like, immediately, like, like a normal person would be, like, I should go get cleaned up. <laughs> like, he's like, yes! He's just standing there, like, holy shit, I just did that. Which is an appropriate reaction where your arms not covered, where your arms and enti- almost your entire front of your torso covered in blood and And baby and guts. Goop. Yeah. <laughs> not blood and guts. Blood the and whole baby time goop. I'm like, don't touch anything. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Don't touch. Like, he's just, he keeps touching things. Like, he touches the door frame, <laughs> and I'm just like, stop, dude. Don't touch that. Like, that's, everything has to be burned now because you won't stop touching things. Like, you're a doctor. You should know better. This is why the janitorial staff is a key part of any local hospital. You go, janitorial staff. And they do this, like, they do the, like, pull up and away shot of him with the, like, music kind of, like, it was almost like, kind of like the sentimental feel-good epi- uh, ending to, like, A Boy Meets World kind of, sa- like, they're, it, it, it's a happy ending. And you think you think that's going to be it. Like, any normal episode, this would be credits. And it's just yeah. not. And it's so good. But uh, another parallel to episode three coming up. Yeah. But now we get the moment we've all been waiting for. The, like I said before, Carol's piece de resistance and how we could never, we could never, never, ever hope to drag her as much as she drags Doug in this audio clip. Doug gets fucking pumped. And I want to start by saying Doug is approaching her door with flowers right now. Yeah. Just to give context. In a lovely suit. But yes. Yeah. But here's their interaction. Doing? Nothing. My, uh, you know, car broke down, and the <laughs> tow truck was taking so long. I thought I'd come in here and use your phone. Late for my date. <laughs> hey, you know, I see the tow truck right there. Really sorry. show up and I'll invite you back in my life in my bed is that what you imagined would happen tonight I don't know you have no right to even think about doing this I'm sorry do you think that you love me huh for how long Doug how long till you start wondering if there isn't someone better in the next room or the next bar how long till that little voice in your head starts reminding you of all the infinite 22 year olds you could be screwing tomorrow or the next day or the next I will not let you do this to me again. 
Sorry. Just fuck him up. Whew, man. Fuck him up. So many things to unpack here. Like, first of all, Clooney, like, or Doug. We have to, we keep having to separate Clooney versus Doug. But, like, Doug, he is, he's brought flowers with him. We're picking back up on the drunk thing from the pilot episode. He is sloppy drunk. He's wearing a tan suit that would make Obama proud. And then he, like, Tag gets his little, like, beefcake shot when he opens the door shirtless. And then he just makes such an ass out of himself in this whole thing. Like, he clearly has not thought any part of this through. Like, I don't even think he thought the successful portion of it through. I think he was just like, I'll just bring flowers and that'll fix everything. Yeah, like, honest to God, what did he actually think was going to happen there? He thinks he's handsome and he's charming and he has flowers. It'll be fine. It works for everybody. But come on, dude. Read the fucking room. We've learned this from Doug. He's not real great at that. I know. He's not. And not not only that, not only that, uh, he denies the CTA their fare by hopping the train, the turnstile. Doug. And to get onto the the brown line at Chicago and Franklin. And what was up with just because they've done this thing once before where he shows up at at Carol's doorstep at night. That was the second episode, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Why did he come in through a different door or did they construct some sort of wall on her street for no reason at all? Because there's a wall in front of, like, because when he does it the first time, there's no wall. He's just on an open street, and he walks up to her door. It may have been construction, because that is common sometimes when they're doing um, construction on one side of the street, is they'll build a little partition. Okay, that makes me feel better. Or if they were doing construction on a building on the other side of the street, maybe the scaffolding had to be extended or something like that, so they had to cover it. Okay, because like, I was like, is he coming in through a back door? And this is like a, I don't know. It was just one of those little insignificant things that bothers only me. Carry on. That would be my guess. I mean, that's another thing that sort of like we mentioned earlier that they play fast and loose with timelines, but they also play fast and loose with Chicago locations and keeping things consistent. But that's neither here nor there. But just, oh my God, just the righteous fury that's in Carol's voice when she's just tearing him down and he's just so sheepish. The thing that I love, the, 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 the like firm emphatic period on the end of the sentence for me is like, she says her piece starts to leave. And then he comes up with that fucking limp dick. I'm sorry. And she just takes this little moment. She steals herself. Like she almost like picks her shoulders up and like straightens them out. And then just keeps walking. Like doesn't even give him the fucking time of day. And it's just, like, talk about, like, you don't need to say anything to have an impact. And that's, in that one little moment there, she just says so much. It's perfect. Yeah, I can't. This is probably my favorite scene so far out of any of the episodes. Definitely the best ending. And Julianne. Margulies. Thank you, because I always butcher her last name. She nails it. She absolutely nails it. Her voice wavers in just the right spots. She's a scorned woman who's not going to take it again. Except we know she will, but after Doug grows up. But yeah, <laughs> she, at this point in her life, after the trauma she's gone through, she's done her therapy, she's done her work, she knows she deserves better than Doug's limp dicked apology, and she's got tag. Here's here's my question. If you have to, because they're, they're both so goddamn good in this episode. If, you know, cards on the table, if you have to pick an MVP for this episode, do you go Carter or do you go Hathaway? I have to give it to Hathaway, just based on this scene alone. 
I think so too. Like Carter does so like it's it, no slight to Carter. He is acting his ass off this whole episode, but in this one scene, she shits on everything that he's done. The whole, like it's like, "Oh, that was really good, but that was better." Yeah, just the sheer raw emotion that Carol vents in this in that just even that little 2 minute span right there is ugh, I can't say enough good things about it. It's I really delicious. Can't. All right, that about wraps up our episode for today. Thank you all very very much for listening. Uh, you can find us on social media at Twitter on at, at set the tone er on Facebook at facebook.com slash setting the tone podcast and also we are at setting the tone podcast on Instagram. You can also support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash setting the tone podcast. Uh, you can help your fellow patrons unlock bonus shows, uh, including a special season recap episode, which will be out about twice a year. And also you can help unlock a monthly bonus show. Uh, where we talk about whatever's going on in our lives at that moment, just us sort of checking in, talking about different things and shooting the shit. Yeah. Our theme music was provided to us by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. And Daniel, where can folks find you at? They can find me on Instagram at danu, that's dot uh, y-o-u dot e-l. Um, you can also find me on my other podcast, The Popular Court, with my co-host Jake Terrell. We do a different pop culture uh, topic each week and put it through a mock trial. This week, or not one of our more recent episodes by the time this drops, um, is we are going to be doing a deep dive on Star Trek Generations, uh, one of the kind of more divisive entries in the Star Trek series. Nice. And Lauren, where can folks find you? I can be found on my personal Twitter at lobob92345. And you can find me on my personal Twitter uh, at randomgamer, G-A-M-3-R. And thank you very much again for listening, and we'll see you next time. 